Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. It's Wednesday night in the city. That time again for us to share our deepest thoughts, fears, hopes, and dreams on the Freedom Main Radio call-in show. Thanks to the callers. It is April 1st today, and I guess every uh, year we get messages saying, hey, was that last video you put out <laughs> April Fools? No, no, just the Stefan's Fools. Uh, but no, I, I once... I tried once or twice I have done practical jokes. Oh boy, I was young. So when I was working up north, there was a guy, uh, he and I had a sort of joshing, joking relationship. This is when I worked as a gold panner, prospector and stuff. And we got, uh, uh, there were a couple of stuffed wolves in the basement of this lodge we were staying at. And there were some guys who were up there hunting for a bear with uh, crossbows and feral dogs, <laughs> just random stuff that people do. And we got a tape recording of the dogs growling, and then when he was in the shower, we put the uh, wolves right outside his shower and then hit the tape, uh, hit the playback of the dogs growling. And uh, that was, I guess, the last practical joke I played when I was, I don't know, 19 or something like that. And it's mostly just because I, I'm trying to de-dick myself over, over time. Uh, because um, a practical jokes is, is it, it relies on trust, uh, it relies on vulnerability, and it's a power grab, and it's, you know, kind of cruel, like, you know, those funniest videos where it's like, hey, let's wake up the sleeping guy with firecrackers. It's like, that's just, that's just mean. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, let's taser something. I mean, it just, it's just mean. And um, so I don't... Uh, uh, I, I don't go in for that kind of stuff. I'm not going to do any uh, videos where it's like, I've decided to run for office and here's my platform and here's the website and here's the pack and all that kind of stuff. No, because uh, it's um, it's just not how I think a trust relationship is supposed to go. And if there's one thing this show relies on, two things this show relies three things this show relies on, uh, me showing up uh, and um, your donations, freedomainradio.com slash donate, and a trust relationship. So, no, I am not going to blow that away for a couple of cheap giggles, uh, mostly at other people's expense. So, all right, Mike, who do we have? All right. Well, Sam is up first today. And uh, Sam wrote in. It's, it's a bit long, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, his letter said, I'm a 35-year-old single mixed-race American man, and I am deeply concerned about the increasing racial tension in America. Worse, I know that I am at least incrementally part of the problem. These days, I am not so solid on my own racial identity. I like to think of that confusion as a good thing that has resulted from a developing ego that is more focused on its broader identity as a professional, a friend, a thinker, and a striver. However, the facts on the ground are these. Genetically speaking, I am a mix of white, black, and Native American, and I feel a strong sense of identity with both my European and African heritage. I am somewhat curious about my Native American heritage, but less so, as this part of my heritage is only genetic without much of a cultural connection. So focusing on the African and European aspects of my genetic and cultural heritage, I will say that I've always found myself in an odd spot. I feel I have experienced both white privilege and black disadvantage, white pride and black shame. In certain, certain circumstances, I have even felt black privilege and white disadvantage, black pride and white shame. My question for Mr. Molyneux is this. I believe that racial identity is a fiction to some degree. 
However, from a practical standpoint, I do not believe that human beings can completely overcome the instinct to stereotype others based on their physical features. So I know that I have, incrementally, contributed to the racial unrest in this country by not accepting this reality and living as a malcontent. Instead of accepting the reality that everyone is, at least, somewhat racist and reckoning with this fact. I have spent years of my life caught up in the silly notion that I deserve a better reality. A reality where white, excuse me, a reality where racial biases do not exist. In other words, while I would be foolish not to acknowledge that my racial identity or lack thereof has been a factor in my life's outcomes, I also know that I have spent far too much time fixated on this instead of working within the total reality of my life, racial realities included. Stefan, I know you have lived your whole life as a white male, but I wonder if philosophy has an answer. How can I move past the malcontentness and work happily within all the limitations of my real life? How can I both humbly and proudly carry all the pieces of my real identity, racial pieces included? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great letter, and uh, it's, I mean, it's a very important topic, and so I, I appreciate you bringing it up. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Now, is there anything you wanted to add to what you um, what you wrote in? Uh, I'm going to say no for now that you just asked me questions because I feel like it was kind of a long-winded introduction. So, No, listen, nothing that's honest can be long-winded. Well, let's see. What would I add? Uh, well, at the moment, I am living in a mostly white community, which is fine for the most part. I have a decent job. Um, I'm single, although I think I can say without much of an ego that I'm a physically attractive man by almost anybody's standards. I feel like my racial identity. Wait, do we have a uh, do we have a Skype photo here? We do. <laughs> Sunglasses. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's that's pretty hot. Okay. Confirmed. <laughs> Confirmed. Right. Uh, and I just want to say that, like, when I go over to my mind, I know you're an empiricist. I feel like the, the race, I, at least some sort of identity stuff is getting in my way. And I know that I'm an contribute to all the race identity. However, that's a thing. And um, I don't want to say I'm struggling with it, but, but it's kind of in the question. It's like malcontentedness for me. And uh, actually... I want to borrow from a video I recently watched from you. You talk about slavery and how it can it, it creates a situation between master and slave, where uh, the master tells you to do you don't really have freedom, but you have to resist. And you're talking about procrastination using this. I feel like I experienced some of this because I feel like you know basically I'm a born Democrat. I'm a natural born liberal, which is a, I'm joking here, but it, you know what I mean how race identity plays so much into politics and uh so so because because you have other race elements people assume your politics right well actually what i was meaning is as i'm a natural born democrat is it's assumed that i'm going to be a democrat when i grew when i was first born and i was sort of indoctrinated into that and i sort of bought into the idea of you know the welfare state and blah 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 and for 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 most of my life and it's been a pretty rude awakening. Some of it was happening before I started listening to your podcast, which has only been a month and a half. And I've, you know, consumed some other stuff uh, on uh, online, uh, some videos and such. So, by the way, I feel like I've done about 60 videos. So I owe you 30 bucks, which I'm going to get to you. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So 
basically, I feel like I've groomed as a Democrat to be part of that whole machine, to be part of that whole like welfare state thing because of my race, you know, darker skin because I have you know darker ethnicity. And, and there's there's a lot of anger, honestly, in me because I, I don't believe in it anymore. I feel like I, I've been had. You know, I, I, I can think of uh, affirmative action programs, uh, things of this nature, and how they've affected my life. And, and I don't think it's overall in a positive way. I don't think it's played well for my self-esteem. And I've just been listening to some of the stuff you've, you've, you've been teaching about how, um, oh, what do you say, that uh, welfare state actually serves to isolate people. And so increasingly concerned with that. So obviously welfare, the idea of the welfare state and as it relates to minorities is a big part of what I'm, what's on my mind and what I'm thinking about here. So let me just, um, Sam, just, be- just before we get in. So, so you brought up sort of how you were so groomed. That's a, kind of a sinister phrase because it has this sort of pedophilia air to it. You know, like, <laughs> groomed. Come here, kid. Remember, strangers have the best candy. And inside every windowless van is a paradise. Um, but but what does that mean when you say that with regards to sort of welfare state of government programs, y- you were groomed? What 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 attitudes were there present when you were growing up about these institutions? That that was the way it was supposed to be. That uh, that uh, you know, the underprivileged, which I think strongly suggests minorities, is are, are supposed to have you know they're supposed to be on some kind of government dole. Um, we're supposed to have our affirmative action. We're supposed to have preferential treatment in, you know, hiring practices, acceptance. Um, what's the, uh, yeah. Okay. So supposed to, but what's the, is there a rationale that's put forward about that? Like why is it like that, you know, white people owe us because of historical injustice against minorities? Yeah. White people owe us, uh, because of historical injustices. Sure. And then the other piece is that the idea that, it's what's best for everyone in the end, because if you sort of like, you know, bring up minority groups so that everyone's just even Steven across the board, then everyone's going to benefit. There'll be less tension in the world and so on and so forth. So it's sort of like a shakedown, like, hey, nice white society you got going on here. Be a real shame if we got unhappy with it. So perhaps you'd like to give us some money. I've come to see it that way. I've come to see it that way. It's been good pain. Well, needful pain anyway, to sort of, I guess, really, because for me, I can feel the change on a body level to the way I was before and the, the way I think now. So I, because I don't believe any of that, that anymore, I, 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 I'm, I'm seeing, I'm sort of seeing the light as it were about, you know, uh, statism and, you know, the first aggression principle and, and, and this and, but anyway, I, I just, you know, so I'm admitting to being a malcontent and, right. and so, or having a history of that. And so that's, that's sort of where what I is, am. Sorry, sorry to interrupt just before we get, because I've always been curious about this and I've, I've talked about this with some other people, but I'd really like to get your, your thoughts on this or what you've experienced. What is, what is the view of white societies from minority communities? I mean, I know that's that's a big question. Sorry, Stephen, uh, I lost you for a few seconds. Could you repeat oh, the sure. entire thing? What is what is the view of white societies from within the minority communities? Um, I, I'm going to be honest. It's easier because you're you know we're talking through phone. Uh, 
I think there's a view of there's a view of admiration and and some jealousy. I mean, mm. you know, uh I mean, it's it's you know, as a realist, which I think I am, it's hard not to admire the overall white society in terms of, you know, clearly there's a greater sense of community there. I mean, obviously there's any number of canner examples and those are going to be mostly anecdotal, but I think that overall, I think that, and, and who's to know why this is a sense of admiration. There's a sense of jealousy. There's a sense of fear because, you know, how are these people going to react to me? If something about the way I look, or the way I sound, or the way I walk and talk is offensive, just based on me being me. Um, and so, and you don't, you know, it's important to have a sense of self-esteem as an individual minority. However, you got to be honest with yourself and say, okay, so there's a framework here where you're dealing with a race that's overall more powerful than yours is, and how do I deal with that peacefully and, you know, with, with acceptance, maybe we can't go back in time and change everything. So I think, I think that's to me, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I feel that way. I've, I've, I've heard people say things that allude to that. You see things said vaguely in the media where it's alluding to this. Um, and so then I guess, does, is this making sense to you, sir? Well, no, it is. It is. Um, I'm just, I mean, white society has, has done some amazing and horrifying things. I mean, <laughs> the, the white society, not, not much for the middle ground, really. Right. It's like, hey, let's wire together the entire planet using technology. And look, nuclear weapons. <laughs> it's like, ah, you know, like the, the market side and the artistic and creative side of white society pretty unmatched i think by other cultures throughout history but boy you know the the unbelievable slaughterhouse of the 20th century particularly in western europe is um when you say you white know, when, people do you include jewish people in your <laughs> well, that's a good question i mean i know some jewish people i think it was mike wallace who was asked uh, uh, are you white he's like no i'm not white i'm jewish so <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the, the question of Jew, Judaism as a religion or an ethnicity or a culture seems to be one of these whirly gig revolving doors of... Well, you can obviously see that there's a, you know, if we're trying to look at it from a genetic framework, then it's it's gets to be pretty easy to pair Jewish people with the rest of Caucasians if you if you if you insist on that. Um, I, I'm just I'm just curious because, you know, just to just to get it a. a a grasp on what your overall reckoning of what it means to be white might be. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, obviously Jews in Western Europe, and there's a, you know, of course, multi millennia history of Jews in, in Western Europe. Um, they, uh, I, I would assume that they're part of Western European culture. Of course they have their own fragmentation, but there's so much fragmentation as well. You know, people look at white culture as, you know, the whites, you know, but that's that's as crazy as me looking at black culture around the world and saying the blacks. It's like, well, sure. no, I think there's quite a lot of difference uh, in the black cultures. And I mean, if there was sort of one unified white culture, it's sort of hard to understand why there was this kind of giant slaughterhouse of world wars mm -hmm. of whites mostly murdering 
each other. I mean, you know, in my family, uh, half British Irish and half German, the, the two sides of the families were at war for a good portion of the 20th century. So it's hard to sort of get that in some sort of unified context within my own mind, you know, mm. you know, uh, so, um, I, but I, I feel I was, like I was the, just curious. Yeah, go ahead. Go well, ahead. it seems like the average white man has a better philosophical understanding as it relates to, you know, societal factors, uh, than the average black man. And, you know, I remember hearing you say something about, um, um, you're, you hate, philo- you hate, culture uh love philosophy philosophy is the culture is something is the something i think that um science to superstition yes 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 i think that maybe some of the admiration that uh you know the black so-called race and other races feel towards towards the, the white race has to do with that and of course culture then becomes that the, the perception at least that there's a bit the stronger philosophy governing uh, white society and then so you know the culture becomes what I want to say uh, a, a weight against that and I think that you know as I'm sure white people experience culture as a weight against their own advancement so yeah I mean the the, the weight of I, you know, it's it's hard to say white because, I mean, I sort of say Western European, as I've sort of talked about the Freedom Club, of which there are lots of non-whites who've contributed magnificently. So I'm just going to say European okay. uh, to be a little bit more inclusive of others. But for me, the weight of European achievements has been, for, for somebody who's as intellectually ambitious as I am and who, when I was younger, was artistically ambitious as a a playwright and an actor and a novelist. But the weight of Western European achievements is intimidating. You know, when you want to be a writer, I mean, I'm, I'm the kind of guy, like, if I'm going to do something, I want to do it. I want to be the best. Yeah. I want to be the best. Okay. I, I mean, not not like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be third best in the world. I want to be the best. Right. I just, I mean, you're certainly not going to get it if you don't aim for it. And aiming for it sure as hell doesn't mean you're going to get it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you want to be, I, I want to be the best. Now, if you grow up in, in England, <laughs> you know, you've got some pretty challenging writing to beat if you want to be the best writer. Yeah. Right? You, you've got your Dickens and your Shakespeare's and, and so on. And so, you know, when I was like, you know, if I'm going to be a writer, man, I'm going to aim for the top, you know, the best writer. And that, the intimidation of those achievements, I mean, if you want to be a great uh, composer, and you've got some pretty intimidating company to to try and beat. And so for me, the, the weight of European achievements was intimidating as hell. And, and that, that's nothing to say of what happened when I decided to turn my attentions to philosophy. And art for me was a way of getting philosophy out. So philosophy was underlying the art from the beginning. And of course, in philosophy, the European tradition is truly awe-inspiring. And the idea of saying, well, I want to be the best uh, in that field is crazy. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's mm. madness. Yeah. But, uh, and, and so for me, that weight of achievement and uh, and of course, um, the, um, the 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 free market developed the technology and the wealth, which allowed the sinister side the sinister side of Europeans to go truly malevolent. Right? I mean, 
uh, to, to, to create a state and, and weaponry and military that was, you know, damn close at some points to wiping out the entire planet. Okay. So for me, looking at the achievements of Western Europe and wanting to match myself to, to sort of climb the, the highest spire of ambition I could find and hopefully find some place in those constellations, that was really intimidating. And that's really spurred me on in whatever it was that I was trying to achieve, wanted to be the best, wanted to be the best. I mean, I don't know how actors do it who are just, you know, like I, I get a couple of roles on TV shows from time to time. I just, ah, if you can't be Brando, don't bother. Right. Now, that's not true for everyone, and that shouldn't be true for everyone. It's just my particular approach to things. I just do the best when I aim the highest. Mm -hmm. And what's, I guess, always been sort of a little bit confusing to me is when other races or cultures come into contact with that, uh, and I don't just mean like, but really like live among it and, and so on, these sort of fruits of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Why not say, damn, these guys set the bar pretty high for achievement, so that's going to be a spur to my ambition. It seems really kind of sad to me yeah. to to see sort of Western European achievements and say, welfare state that's what i'm going to get out of it is the welfare state like why not get out of it uh, this incredible spur to like you think white people are good let's do even better right yeah and well it's an ego thing right i mean because you know you can't accept your how that contact that you talked about how that changes your ego and your identity i mean what what i was kind of thinking of when i wrote my email of somebody who's experienced like black privilege and white privilege. I have, you know, I, I was kind of like a superstar athlete in, in, in high school. And I was just rolling over, you know, all these skinny white kids in wrestling. And so, so that's, you know, and I, I found that the, it was obviously something that's noticed my athletic prowess and certainly any intelligent person could connect it to my race, but you know, and you, you, what I experienced with some people, some white people were put out by it and some white people did have that attitude based on you're talking about. It's like, this guy's got some, you know, some musculature, some that, you know, that I wasn't born with, but I'm going to, you know, work out. Oh, with wait, him. sorry. Do you, do you mean, and I'm no expert in this area, but do you mean sort of, uh, from, from the black side of your heritage, sort of the narrower hips, faster fire muscles, denser bones, that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I've come to accept the idea that uh, you know slavery was a genetic cr crucible that tr that primed African Americans for the athletic prowess that they enjoy today, and you know dominating the major sports and so on and so forth. Um, so to me, I think that's an that, that, I guess that's an example of black privilege, born privilege of you know having you know a musculature that gave me advantage in terms of speed and strength over uh, a great deal of of, of my my white uh you know people that i was competing against in, in wrestling in high school and part of college and um but see now that the thing is is another thing i want to say here is i get i totally get what you're saying it's like okay so in the face of western european achievement why cop an attitude why not say okay why not be inspired by it i think there's something in black culture largely that says that that uh is geared toward just denying it 
altogether, which is which is wait, sorry, denying that their achievements, denying their achievements, denying you know what it what it said, you know, denying what it says, denying your own admiration, you know, and well, it doesn't necessarily mean admiration for for me at all. I mean, it can be annoyance that someone's that that that, that there's sort of this high bar somewhere. I mean, I, I I think white people to some degree have this relationship with the groups that do better than white people. I mean, to take that sort of Christian uh, Western European thing. Uh, so, for instance, of course, uh, in in engineering school, whites have a challenge competing with the Asians, right? Because the Asians are really good, it seems, right. at that kind of stuff. But of course, Asians have a higher per capita income than whites. And then standing, uh, you know, almost monolithic in their capacity to dominate a variety of intellectual and uh, artistic and um, uh, business uh, endeavors or fields uh, are the Jews, particularly the Ashkenazi Jews, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who have this like crazy average IQ of like, what, 122, 124 or something like that. And the degree to which Jews kick butt around the world in terms of their achievements is, to me, one of these things is like, well, <laughs> that's a really high, it's a higher bar. I mean, it's not like the, the whites, uh, Western European Christian whites are at the top of the heap, you know, that they're not. And so looking at the, the capacities and abilities of uh, and incomes and achievements of other races, other cultures, you know, there's lots of places for white people to look up and say, okay, there's... Mm, you know what I love about the Jews is yeah. the degree to which they talk about or, or embody what human potential can look like. And I find that a significant spur to ambition. And, um, you know, what, what one man can do, another man can do to, to some degree. And so right. I, like, I like it when the bar gets higher, although it, it's admiration and sometimes it's annoying. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, it can rub your ego. Um, I think, okay, so it seems like kind of, maybe that's part of the answer to my question maybe to I, I don't know what word you use the word that keeps coming to my mind is admire others for their achievements admire other races for their achievements jews white people uh you know asians and and be inspired by that or, or get competitive get, get more serious how about and maybe this is going to be for me. Somebody who has such a loose racial identity is that is that a privilege? I mean, I don't, I don't even know anymore. I'm, well, let, let's get to that in a sec. But but and and I really I'm sort of consciously bookmarking that. But okay. But Sam, what do you think? Because you know, what, why not go full full volatile here? I mean, because it seems to me that if you look at a group that has achieved both great and terrible things, yeah then you, of course you want to try and achieve the great things and avoid the terrible things, which is <laughs> do, right. do, do the good and avoid the bad. That's sort of the basic tagline of the show. Yeah. But when a group looks at, let's just say, I don't know, Hispanics look at whites or whatever. And, and if part of the, the, the approach, and we're generalizing ridiculously here, but, but yeah. if part of the approach is, you know, those colonial bastards they owe us let's get welfare or whatever right mm -hmm. then is there not an implicit downgrading of one's own culture in that yeah because uh, is, no, isn't yeah. there something which says well we we can't possibly do that absolutely and it, so so the best we can hope for is to be manipulative and parasitical and again that's not even remotely all or, or even the majority but there's some portion oh, of it yeah yeah no it i i can't remember for the life of me 
uh, who it was, but uh, they were they were talking about how liberals have a philosophy, basically. I don't think that's the word he he used, but it's basically the same thing. There's a philosophy behind what liberals do, but it's unspoken. And he, you know, and I, I'm not a Republican, but this is his claim. He claimed that Republicans have a philosophy, and it's a spoken philosophy. So I, I you know, I think I can't speak for him, but he might say that this is the that that's the unspoken philosophy, the democratic way of being like we have to accept without ever talking about it. Oh, you know, uh, the personal degra- degradation, racial degradation by the fact that, but by idea that we got in my handouts in my life. Um, and it just, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't, this is, you know, brought to my attention. Well, it wasn't brought to my attention for the first time because I'm sure I thought of it, but in my early days of college, a white person, uh, a very close white friend of mine basically brought up the same, uh, the same issue that you're taking with it. And I, and it, it made my stomach churn because I realized I knew it and I thought of it before, but I didn't realize how obvious it was to everybody else. And I kind of sort of felt embarrassed. Um, so thank you for bringing that. Well, there's no reason for you to feel embarrassed. I mean, because you, you, you don't want any sort of collective. Um, you don't want to take any burdens of a collective identity because that's you know, we're not you're an individual and all that. But mm. I mean, this it's something that's bothered me. And I've mentioned it on the show before. So I'll just touch on it briefly here. But it always bothers me when there's unconscious or implicit higher standards for whites than there are for non-whites. Yeah. Uh, and and that that really bothers me. Well, uh, yeah, because, because I, it, I think it's yeah. But so I'll just give you an example of one, right? So, so um, whites are supposed to be not racist at all, sure, right? And and if there's and even a whiff of racism among a white person, you know, this this howling mob of political correctness comes out and, and yeah. nails the scalp to a tree or whatever, right? Mm. And and okay, let's say I, I think that's kind of a hysterical standard, but let's say that's the standard, right? right. In other words, so whites have had it according to the general narrative. Whites have had this history of oppressing other races and other cultures and being racist and dominant and all this kind of stuff. And then I think around you know midnight on June first, nineteen sixty four, that was supposed to be done over with. Whites right. now must no longer be racist in any way, shape, yeah. or form. They're done. It's 100%. The past is cut off. There's no continuity in history. No. All the patriarchy, all the exploitation, all the racism, gone, done, over, finished, the end. Your time ran right? out. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, no, but, but then what the happens notion, is... Anyway. But, then if we, but then why is that only white people? There's this implicit racism in that because nobody says... Well, this should be true for all of us. The history, the history should be gone and done with, and it should all be over. Because the blacks will say, and not all, but some blacks will say, when dysfunction within the community, what do they say? You know, it's the it's the two sides of the same evil coin, which is uh, slavery and racism. Why are we doing bad as a community? Slavery and racism. Slavery and racism. So blacks, for blacks, the momentum of history is an excuse. They're allowed to sort of coast to some degree downhill on this this momentum of history. But whites are not allowed to have any momentum of history because they just have this amazing ability to just cut off history and remake themselves completely anew. Whereas blacks continue to be pulled under by the racism and slavery and weight of history arguments and all that kind of stuff. But isn't that having lower standards for blacks than it is for whites? If whites are supposed to be completely over history and and as if it never happened, but you'd never accept that for blacks, there's kind of implicit racism in that against the blacks. Well, I think if we're going to, you know, improve the racial situation in America, in North America, 
Um, I think that one of the things you need is to have compassion and understanding for where people's racist attitudes are coming from. It's, it's, it's hard to do, but you know, it's so, yeah. So I don't expect, you know, every like racial attitude or thought, you know, to just go away for, for white people. That's ridiculous. I mean, it's part of, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, racism is just a piece of xenophobia and xenophobia is probably in our DNA, I think. And so, no, sorry, do you mean just like, what, what, tell me what you mean by racism? Cause you know, <laughs> okay. So, okay. So yeah, 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 we should. Okay. So the, when I use the word racism, I try to restrict it to somebody is not necessarily in direct competition with me for advancement in this world, but they're still opposing my advancement because of my race. That's I try to restrict my when I use the word racism, I try to restrict it to that. Okay, so let me just make sure I understand this. So, you know, if you and I are up for the same job, I don't want you to get the job, but not because. Let's say you and I are not up for the same job. You just happen. Yeah. So if we're not up the same job, I don't want you to get this job because. Because I'm African. I just dislike the fact that you have this mixed race or you're a different race or whatever. Right. Right. And maybe you maybe you work in the same office, but you're not even on the same advancement track. You're in a different field or whatever, but you still don't like seeing me move forward because of my racial identity or how you perceive my racial identity. Well, okay, but let me ask you this. And and so when when I hear definitions of racism, I mean, again, I've never denied that racism exists and so on. But when I hear definitions of racism, I always try and figure out if there's even a remotely rational basis for anxiety around a particular topic, right? And, and, and if there isn't, then it's racism. And if there is, it may still be racism, but it may also be tinged with something else, right? So okay. I think there's a fairly, because for minorities have a stronger sense of racial identity and racial uh, collectivism than the majority does. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think I see that. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to imagine how some guy, I, I don't think I would feel this way. In fact, I know I wouldn't, but I'm trying to think of some guy, like some white guy and, and there's a management position opening up and there's a black guy who's going up against the white guy. Mm-hmm. Do you think the white guy might be concerned that if the black guy becomes the boss, that the black guy out of racial solidarity might be more predisposed to hiring other blacks? Yeah, I could see that. Um, and so now my my definition of racism, I can see, doesn't isn't as tidy as it was. Um, I understand. I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that, that that's a, it's a remotely rational reason as to why somebody might be concerned about that. Now, the black guy might be concerned about that with the white guy. If the white guy is very pro-white and anti-minority, then the black guy obviously would not want the white guy to get into the boss's uh, chair because he would fear the same thing from the white guy. Okay. So let's say that there's that, uh, you have a sense of who this, this African American person is, and he's not that way. And you search your own feelings. You really just don't want him to have the job because it's, it rubs your ego to, uh, because he's black. Because he's black and he's in charge. Yeah. I think that would be, that'd be pretty clear racism then. Yeah. Right. If it just comes down to, Everything else being equal, but because he's black, yeah. Then, yeah, I think that would definitely be pretty clear racism. And, and you raised a you raised a very important point for sure. Um, I'm all, I mean, I'm just because racism has become one of these. 
well, airstrikes it, that is yeah. called in against people. And I'm yeah. I'm always trying to find, okay, is there some reason, right? So like some people right. feel concerned uh, uh, around black youths. Yeah. And the people who feel the most concerns around black youths are other blacks, right? Because I think it was Jesse Jackson who said it's tragic that after 20 years of working in the field, if I hear footsteps around me at night, I turn around and it's not a black, a, a group of black youths, I'm relieved, right? And so, so feeling anxiety, I, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's something like the 3% of the American population is um, black males, 15 to 36 and they commit like out of three percent of the population, they're doing thirty-three percent of the crimes. Mm. And so, uh, sort of anxiety around black youths is not. It, it may be racism. I mean, certainly, if it's a bunch of black youths playing Dungeons and Dragons, then yes. If you feel anxious around, <laughs> I mean, assuming they're not doing it live, right, right, with, right. with figurines and dice, uh, or if they're, you know, if a fear of of black youths who are, um, I don't know, uh, uh, performing tai chi in the park. <laughs> <laughs> then that would be uh, racist, but uh, there may be other. So I'm always, again, this doesn't excuse and it doesn't eliminate the racism that exists. But I think we also not that there's such a, a rush to judgment and jumping yeah. to conclusions of. Aha, well, I totally racism. agree. You know, no, yeah. the, the 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 word racism has become a shotgun blast because you're trying to hit as much as you can with it, and no two people mean the same thing when they're saying it. So yeah, I mean, it was really important for us to like lay out what we're talking about when we're using that word. I try to, you know, you know, when people accuse me of being racist, my, my rebuttal these days when I'm not being racist is I'm discussing a race related topic. And so I say, I'll use that to delineate between what what's become my operational definition of racism. And when I'm talking about race, because for whatever reason I want to, but I don't without a sense of because you'll never hear me saying, oh, those Chinese don't deserve, you know, this, that and the third because they're, you know, that shape of their eyes or whatever. I, I, I'm not that kind. But but yeah. So. And of course, the challenge with racism as well. And. The degree to which this is all clear is is obviously still up in the air. But I think one of the challenges with racism as well is, is fundamentally the question, can one say anything in general about other groups? Right. And, and I think that's, a, it's a fascinating question. Mm. Now, can, can one say anything in general about other groups? Biologically, of course we can, right? I mean, yeah. absolutely. Asians tend to be shorter uh, and, uh, and, and there's, you know, a variety of other things that, that could be said. But we can say things in general around other groups and right. saying things in general around other groups doesn't matter and is irrelevant when evaluating individuals, right? So yeah, Asian guys are shorter, but I certainly can't tell for sure that the next Asian guy I meet is going to be shorter. He could be some towering giant, right? So Right, right. Um, and, and so, and, and we're having a race-related discussion right now, and, and this is what some people would call racist. They'd find a way to construe it as racist. Oh, because we're discussing race in any way, shape or form. Yeah. That must be racist. Well, the argument that race is a social construct, in other words, there's absolutely zero difference between any of the races except for what exists in our paranoid and feverish and xenophobic imaginations, I don't believe is true fundamentally. Uh, and and no. I think that, like, for instance, if, if you were a doctor and you treated all of your patients the same regardless of their race, uh, you would probably be sued for malpractice. 
mm. because there are particular biological differences between the races. And right. um, so, so, so uh, yeah, sorry. So, so I don't think you can just say, well, race is, is merely, and some people have said this and some people who are into genetics have said this. And so I get all of that. And I'm, I'm simply saying my opinion, I'm not a geneticist, uh, but from what I've read, there are some particular differences uh, between uh, the races. And there are, I think about, I, I don't know the Mofkusi off the top of my head, 50 or 60 various different markers that, um, that delineate the sure. races. Now, uh, right. we are, of course, one species. And, uh, you know, we're a lot closer than this, the, 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 the sort of dogs in terms of like uh, similarities, and we all interbreed and all that. Mm-hmm. But uh, there, are, there are genetic differences. And can we say that that results in us being able to say that there are general characteristics of races. I think the fascinating thing is, I'd really, if we didn't live in a government-centered society, my question is, who would even really care about general differences? Now, it could be possible that insurance companies might care for specific medical issues. Mm. Uh, You know, some some groups would be more prone to various different types of of ailments and illnesses and so on. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, like, if we didn't live in a government-centered society, if we lived in a truly free or an anarchic society, who would really care about making general statements about various groups? I mean, you you would deal with the individuals that you met. Yeah. And that would be what you would do. And I just, I wonder the degree to which, like, at the moment, there's this thing going on in Indiana. It's a a mild segue, but I think it's sort of compliments. And then I'll shut up and let you talk about the stuff that, that means something to you, means more to you. But in Indiana, there's this law that was simply proposed recently, which basically is trying to say that if you're a Christian, uh, you, you can't be uh, compelled to provide services to people whose lifestyle you consider offensive or against your beliefs or whatever. So yeah, there's a famous um, case of uh, a woman who's a, a baker and a gay couple asked her to bake a cake for them and she refused mm-hmm. and uh, she was brought up on all these charges and um, for every complaint she gets a $2,000 fine so a lot of gay lobby groups phoned in all these complaints and the bills just piled up and all that mm-hmm. and uh, it's um, I, I, I think it's a terrible situation of course you, you know if, if you're a photographer and yeah, I mean, you're a it shouldn't photographer be, it shouldn't be illegal. Yeah, she should be free to, to not to associate with who she wants to not associate with. Yeah. I mean, of course, right? Yeah. I mean, it's so tragic that the well, gay lobby and this, of course, is nothing to do with... Why would you want to go there if you're gay and they have that attitude? That's why, as an African-American, I'll be damned if I understand why African-Americans want to force their way into, like, uh, uh, golf clubs where they're, you know, country clubs where they're not wanted. Why would you want to be there? Isn't it degrading yourself? But, but I'm sorry. Right, right. Yeah. But go so, ahead, but I mean, w- the only reason that this is even an issue is because we live in a government society. And the only reason that this law, as far as I understand it, the only reason why this law really exists is because of all these anti-discrimination measures. Uh, and I don't believe that a doctor who is morally opposed to birth control should be forced to provide birth control or prescribe birth control. Uh, I mean, I just think there's no point having ethics if you're not allowed to follow them and you're not initiating force against others and so on. And people who uh, want birth control can just go to a different doctor. So there is this weird thing around why we so, and I think it's fair to say in America, obsessed by race. And I think a lot of it Mm -hmm. has to do with simply the fact that everyone's trying to grab the power of the state. I view race in, in America as a modern form of religious warfare. 
And religious warfare, when the government has the power to regulate beliefs, yeah. then everybody with beliefs attempts to gain control of the state. When the power, ha- when state has the power to grant favors and withdraw favors or, or impose penalties, which is the tax and, and redistributionist system, uh, on one belief set versus another belief set, one group versus another group, then just like the religious warfare that happened in England prior to the, um, the end of the Reformation, you had all of these religious groups trying to gain power over the state in order to impose their vision uh, on everyone else. And I view, uh, because the state has so much power to, to regulate, to control, to, to bribe, to, to provide advantages to, I view uh, modern race relations in America merely as uh, a form of uh, religious civil war, uh, very analogous in many ways to, to what happened in Europe uh, in, uh, a couple of hundred years ago. Mm. Well, you know, I, I'm starting to come around to the viewpoint that it is sort of like racial division is being played up in order for uh, liberals, Democrats to secure um, African-American votes, minority votes. I'm simply too old. I'm just I'm a grown ass man. And I, I know better than to believe that, you know, people, you, you know, there's this group of people that are just so concerned about my well-being because I'm one minority, because, of course, they're not. They're concerned about themselves. That's the way people are. They're concerned that if they're not concerned about you, they're going to be called racist. Right? They're going to be called racist. Ah, they're not going to get my preemptive vote. strike. Well, one of the things. Oh, he, sorry, let me just I just and go on in a sec. I just wanted to mention. So this yeah. is genetically conditioned characteristics that vary between major racial groups, yeah. body size and proportions, yeah. cranial size and shape, pigmentation, obviously, of the hair, skin and eyes, hair form and distribution, number of vertebrae. Did you know that the number of vertebrae differentiates between the races, fingerprints, yeah. bone des- density? Basic metabolic rate, sweating, consistency of earwax, uh, age of eruption of the permanent teeth, fissural patterns on the surface of, it sounds like I'm auditioning for bones or something, <laughs> fissural patterns on the surfaces of the teeth, blood groups, chronic diseases, frequency of twinning. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Because in the black communities, there are a, a much greater um, frequency of there being twins, and it's less so in the um, Caucasian community and extremely rare in the Asian community. Male to female birth ratios are different between the... Um, the races, visual and auditory acuity. The proportion of color blindness is different between the races. Length of gestation period, physical maturity at birth, they sort of go on and on. So those can't all be social constructs that are a result of, of prejudice in society. Sorry, Sam, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Well, I like that you're an empiricist, but to me, it's all common sense. I mean, when I look at a family, just another family, they may be black, they may be whatever, there's characteristics that Oh, that family's just this way. That family's that way. They they smile a lot. They laugh a lot. They're or maybe they're more quiet. They all look a certain way. If I can see the that within one family unit, I mean, what's a race other than a super family? It's it's all it's it's kind of. I feel like it's always been common sense to me, but it's it was sort of like any time I would stack two bricks of common sense about race, uh, somebody would some power would come in my parents whoever and to sort of sweep that away you know you can't think this you can't know this blah blah, blah. you because that 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 gets in the way of our agenda of uh of you know you're marching orders to be a democrat you're supposed to believe in the welfare state we need this shit you know we we, we, we want you to grow up and be that and uh so that's i guess that, that that's how i experience it one of the things that was really uh really changed my mind about a lot of things was um 
I guess you probably know who Geraldine Ferraro is. She, yeah, she's a was she a Latino politician in the states? No, she may be Latin, but she she's white in appearance, and she was. I'm guessing she's probably Italian, uh, but she was. Oh yeah, Ferraro. Yeah, I think that's. She, she, I, I meant Latin, like uh, ancient Latin. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. She, so she ran for vice president under Mondale and lost. And when Barack Obama, now Barack Obama has been a terribly weak president. That's another story. But when Barack Obama won, what uh, was running for election, it was starting to become more and more clear that she, he was going to be a, a real challenge to Hillary Clinton. She came in with the comment that he was lucky that he's black. Now, maybe that's true, but surely somebody like Ferraro knows that every, that the black vote has been instrumental for every democratic president since Kennedy. So the idea that, so that that's where to me, that, that's somebody in the Democrat establishment really showing their stripes, really showing what they're, you know, what they really feel, what they really believe. Uh, because basically she's basically, saying we resent you for not getting in line giving us your votes because we decided we wanted to, to have a woman president this go around and not that not saying that there wouldn't be many great things about having a female president i i i waited anxiously and i wait having a strong black president which we didn't get this time but but you see what i'm saying there it's just it starts to become you know when you really see what motive, when you really listen to what people are saying and you start to see, you know, what's really motivating. Like, this is, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, how did we, we're being used? Stephen A. Smith, a famous uh, black uh, sports commentator in the United States, made the simple argument. It's like, you know, black people should shop around, see what, see what the, talk to Republicans, see about what, what they can do for specific concerns within the black community. Don't be owned by one party. Uh, under the under the assumption that they're representing your your best interests, like they just think you're neat and they just care about you, it's ridiculous. Oh yeah, no. Anybody who thinks that politicians care about them rather than their votes is, uh, you know, is, is like a woman with giant tits and a low cut top, thinking that all the attention she gets is for her personality. <laughs> no, and and I mean the 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 Democrats have have made in the U.S. have made like some unbelievable comments about uh, race and particularly about Obama. Um, I mean, didn't, didn't Biden say of Obama that he's, he's good because he's articulate and clean. I mean, that's astounding. And uh, also, so this is a reported former U S president, Bill Clinton had taken a racial jibe at Barack Obama in 2008 saying this guy would have been carrying our bags. A report claimed recently. Yeah. Um, Which is allegedly funny. To, I mean, I can to Ted Kennedy. I mean, yeah. He said to Ted Kennedy, um, the, the, he tried to convince the liberal to endorse his wife. And uh, there's one attributed to Clinton in the 2010 book. Um, there was a book called Game Change. And Mr. Clinton, uh, Clinton was uh, supposed to have said about Barack Obama, a few years ago, this guy would have been getting us coffee. Yeah. And... Um, the, right. And there's, the there's some truly astounding stuff. Hardworking yeah. Americans euphemism that Hillary Clinton was constantly using. It was, you know, uh, Greg Giraldo. Hello? Yeah. Oh, you're still there. I heard a click. Somebody. Okay. Greg Giraldo uh, had this great bit about uh, hardworking Americans and how it was an obvious uh obvious uh euphemism that just meant white people weren't going to vote for you hardworking americans yeah no i i, I think uh, 
honestly, you know, I, I prefer, you know, to some degree, open racist white, right, white men from the South, because Democrats uh, with their supposed egalitarian viewpoints are much more likely to just act weird around you when you actually show up. And so what, well, that, and that's something what is that, that I wanted to get into, because, I mean, not only are you a minority, of course, but you're, I mean, you're a minority in a bunch of minorities, right? Because, because of your racially mixed heritage. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I just, well, I was curious. I mean, what, what's it like for you socially? I mean, uh, isn't, isn't that one of the challenges of being racially mixed is, um, where where do you, you know, where are your homies so to speak like where do you sort of um you know i i have uh, so i live in this town i work in oil and gas and so this this town's kind of just a work camp so it's just basically you know the people closest to you whatever so my my friends are the white people that live in my apartment complex just out of expedience you know i've had black friends um i don't I remember because I thought you might ask something like this. I remember now kind of what I wanted to say. Like, I, I don't feel like, you know, I've necessarily had a strong sense of status or place at the table in either the, the, the white or, or the black race. There, there's been a sense in me and uh, and I'm perfectly willing to analyze this further as it might just be an excuse for me not, you know, getting the most out of my life, but there's definitely, there's feeling in me that, uh, that God, if I were just white, I would have this much more. Like I would have that, I, I would be more respected in this context. Or if I were just like full blooded black, I would be more res- respected in this context. I, <laughs> I have this cousin. I love him. He looks like the notorious BIG, but he is the king of of his social context and he has this smoking hot black chick who i would just love you know to to even get a date with well i can't do it you know because he he you know and he's talked about you know analyzing social dynamics and how he built himself up to that to have basically the queen of 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 his sort of uh social context I, i feel like i don't want to say that's been denied me because that would be like defeatist but maybe uh, through Wait, how, how is he the king of his social context? Uh, well, he, you know, he got involved with his uh, black fraternity uh, at an early age, like the first year or two he was in college, and he started building uh, a community around him, um, a, c- a community in which he's not the elected leader, but he's seen as a leader. He's an organizer um, in terms of the interests of that community, and he's seen as a strong, dignified, noble uh, man. And so he, he's reaping the rewards. I, I don't feel like so he can he contributes a lot though, right? I mean, absolutely. Everybody wants to be the alpha, but you get to be the alpha because you provide people value. Oh, absolutely. And he, you know, he I admire him greatly. He talked about how coming to understand so, the social dynamics and how you know you advance yourself in order to attract a female. He said he understood that basically when he was a teenager. I think I just caught up. I read this chintzy book that was very helpful. I read The Game. Maybe you've heard of it. You know, it's... Uh, I, I, yeah, it's a, it, it, it's what, what signifiers or what markers women are looking for in a mate, right? Right. Well, it's, yeah, and, and, and it's written by this guy who is a pickup artist. So I got kind of a very sleazy in, initiation slash... Uh, 
what I want to say, rude awakening into what it really took to, 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 to achieve a mate because these guys were just trying to sleep with every woman they could and, you know, kind of maybe played up some licentiousness in me. But anyway, um, I forgot what my point was. But yeah, we're just you were talking, talking about- uh, we were talking about sort of where, where you fit in. Um, and I, I don't mean to imply you could say everywhere or no, it may be a completely inappropriate question, not sort of politically incorrect, yeah. but just, you know, well, in um, fairness, I, I knew a, a dude who was almost my exact same make, uh, racial makeup. We weren't related, but people thought we were, that's how much we looked alike. And he seemed to have no issues in college. Like, so I, I feel like maybe it just wasn't a hangup for him. Because he, you know, had his fill of, I mean, I, I know that you're not into multiple partners, but it wasn't any, it didn't seem to be a barrier for him in terms of whatever racially identified woman he was after. He kind of, you know, really just gregarious guy. Everybody liked him. And, and, and so, you know, and so maybe that's a, how much are we hung up on race? I mean, you said, you know, how much am I hung up on race and how much is that getting in my way? Um yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing where if you say that, I mean, it's easier said than done, but if you say, I'm not going to focus on race, it would be really interesting to see how many other people would around you. Mm-hmm. How do you mean? If I'm saying this out loud or I'm saying it in my head? No, just in your head. So if I'm saying in my head, I'm not going to... Like if you say, if you say, look, race is just not going to be part of my equation. Like it's not going to be part of how... I deal with the world. Right. And so the question and, is... And it would be very interesting to see what would happen to the people around you. I mean, if we just sort of take the assumption, let's just say for a moment, race is a social construct. Yeah. And um, if we were to say, okay, well, I'm going to... Because honestly, this is how I I don't really... You know, I, don't, I, very, I think maybe once or twice where it seemed relevant, I've asked the race of a caller. Okay. And um, I, I, you know... I don't know. I mean, I've, I found out sometimes afterwards this person who called in was this race or that race. Don't see how it makes any difference. But mm-hmm. um, so if, if you sort of live like race is not that important a topic, I wonder the degree to which I mean, this is this is Morgan Freeman, right? I mean, Morgan <laughs> Freeman 101, mm-hmm. where he basically says, can we just stop talking about it? <laughs> can right. we just stop yeah. talking about it? Mm-hmm. And let's just say we're all part of the human race. I think it would be really interesting to see what would happen if um, if we live like there is no particular relevance to race. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, I watched your uh, truth about race something and where you're talking about how basically facts about the uh, Gardner, uh, Trayvon Martin and one other case were sort of skewed and pieces were taken out of quotes and rearranged in a certain way. And, you know, so, and the, my own experiences, I've seen people who've been able to navigate these kinds of things. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's time, maybe I need to shut the fuck up. I mean, maybe I just, maybe I need to stop fixating on it. Um, well, I, I wonder, yeah, because we, I don't think we really know the extent of, what race is is doing in society because we're kind of obsessed by it right <laughs> like yeah. like it's gotten to the point where you know i remember this having this conversation with a friend of mine when i was younger 
where the only way you can tell the race of a particular criminal is if it's not mentioned. Mm. Like if it's in, if there's some <laughs> newspaper article, like a right. group of youths, you know, or be on the lookout for this guy. Yeah. He's, you know, and it's like right. the only way you know what race is, if he's Asian, you know, he's an Asian guy. If he's white, <laughs> there's a white guy. If he's black, yeah. it's like you have to read between the lines, so to speak. And I remember also being really surprised when I was a kid. This is back when I was very <laughs> young in the ways of, of race obsession. But um, there was a um, one of these, uh, we, we would go and see a kid's movie. And there was one of these government-sponsored ads, which was supposed to convince you to stay in school. You know, stay in school, stay in school, stay in school. Mm -hmm. Now, Sam, can you imagine, can you guess which, what was the race and gender of the kid who was supposedly about to drop out of school? Um, I don't know. Black, maybe? Or it could be any. No. <laughs> that's not what necessarily pops in my head, but just the way you ask the question. No, because you got to think politically correct, right? It oh, was, in fact, right. an Asian woman, like an Asian girl. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't have the statistics off the top right. of my head, yeah. but I'm fairly convinced that of the I'm going to drop out of school right. group, I don't think that Asian girls are exactly overrepresented. I don't think there's a huge problem in the Asian girl community that there's massive amounts of, of dropping out of school. Not exactly. Anything. And so, again, you had to, it's this kind of weird inverse world. Now, I don't know, if, because Canada has a different population and a you know, different history, no slavery and all that. But if, if, I don't know, maybe the proportions are, are high for, for blacks or whatever. Maybe it's black. But if you had done a stay in school promo and there had been a young black man who you would you know was the who was trying to decide whether to stay in school or not? Mm -hmm. People would have got upset, right? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, because you're and so you you have to yeah. you have to put in this. The only people who aren't going to get upset, right, are the the Asian moms of Asian girls because they're going to look at that and they're going to say, well, that's not a problem in our community, really. So I don't mind. Like, so you in this weird inverse world right. where you you're, you're trying to to convince kids to stay in school and the only kid you can put in the lead role is the kid who's least likely to drop out of school because they're the only people who aren't going to get offended. And so you end up in this weird, you, you, you kind of map things in backwards and in reverse, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're so politically correct that we're, we're, we're in our own way, like political correctness. And the facts wouldn't matter. The facts wouldn't matter. I mean, I don't know, Mike, if you have a sec, if you can look up if there's any ethnicity dropout rates uh, in, in Canada or rates of dropout from high school. But the facts don't matter. So if you were to make that commercial and you, you put a black, a young black man in there mm -hmm. and uh, people would say, oh, that's racist. And you would say, well, but statistically, they are the most likely to drop out of school. And that's who we want to target. We actually want to do good here. Mm -hmm. I mean, then that it's like doesn't matter. It's like, facts don't matter. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the ego at work. I mean, it's just the ego hates facts. I mean, or the, the uh, resistant ego or whatever that's resisting change uh to its identity that's way to see in the world um yeah so i mean i i would like i i think to drop the topic of race i think would be nice because it would be really interesting to see what the effects were or what race would be like mm. in society if we weren't obsessed and paranoid about it all the time well it's been I think suggested that would be to me many times that you know, it's it's an area of fixation uh, for me. I feel like a lot of this has been really driven home by my father, who's come to be really embittered, 
you, you know, about his standing in society. But then to, I got to be honest, I just feel like he's just not a very hardworking person, not a hardworking focused individual. It's just easier to blame white people for his failings, personal failings than to take it on himself. And because, yeah. I mean, he's been, you know, greatly traumatized over the years because of uh, financial things, deals and things that have gone bad. And I think he's really, you know, I, I, I absorbed a lot of this and obviously some of it's real, but I absorbed a lot of this. And the thing is, is, you know, the fact that I focused on it, the fact that he's brought so much of my focus to it uh, and, you know, and it's just, and I feel that there's some hypocrisy there because he married and is still married to a white woman. It's like, why are you? So the ire, I, I understand he feels towards what he considers racial injustice is understandable. However, when you have a, a mixed race family, you're driving a wedge into your own family. It's like, well, what, what, what am I supposed to do with this pop? You know, like. And at what point, you know, at what point does this this defensive racism, as I've t- talked about on this show before, become a self-fulfilling prophecy? So, I mean, if if there's a young black man out there or a or young Hispanic man or whatever, mm-hmm. who, you know, you can't, you can't get ahead, you know, whitey will <laughs> crush you every time. Mm-hmm. Well, then they're, you know, how hard are they going to work? Or if you do get ahead and you've, and you've gotten ahead through some government program, how are you supposed to, you know, you've undermined yeah. yourself because people are talking about you behind your back. Did he really earn that? Is he just here because, you know, he's African American or whatever. Um, I felt that I went to, I tried graduate school. I have a, I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry. I tried graduate school and I really had the sense that I probably shouldn't be there, at least in that particular graduate program. And I probably wasn't qualified. And I wondered if they kind of, you know, <laughs> If I was accepted just because of my my race identity and if other people, I wondered, I actually, I felt that that was probably true. And I wondered if, how many people were aware of it in my cohort. Mm. And and as a result, tragically, employers don't know either. Yeah. And it doesn't help. So you graduate I mean, and, and this makes the degree less valuable for all people uh, who, who may have got in through affirmative action. This is one of the reasons why college becomes less attractive. And so, you know, my sort of basic, again, as an empiricist, my basic opinion would be something like this, is that, I don't know, let's just pick the black community for for what, you know, because they seem to be doing the worst uh, of the communities in the U.S. So I'm perfectly willing to accept the thesis of racism if blacks do exactly what Asians do and still don't succeed. Right. Right. Then, Then absolutely I'm willing to to accept that racism is the most likely explanation. But there was a study done recently when uh, in, in America where uh, Asian, Hispanic, white, and black kids were asked, what, what's the lowest grade you get before your parents get angry? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is, this is going to be interesting. Go ahead. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, right, it goes down the traditional slice that you see in socioeconomic evaluations of the races. Yeah. Asians are at the top. If I bring home an A minus, my parents are in, incensed, right? Yeah. And um, for whites, I think it was a B plus. And for Hispanics, this is off the top of my head. For the Hispanics, it was like a B minus. And mm-hmm. for the blacks, it was like a C plus or a C or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Japan, 
the kids are doing four hours of homework a day. And in America, kids are doing four hours of homework a week. Now, I'm not a huge fan of homework. I'm not saying right or wrong or whatever. But once, like, if, if the black community is doing everything that the Asian community is doing, yeah. Right. So so we just did a, a show which I haven't released yet, uh, The Truth About Single Moms. And we point out that black kids are watching 12 to 13 hours of screen time a day. Get out. Really? <laughs> I'm telling you, I think for for whites, it was like six, which is still crazy high. And that's really bad, uh, you know, and and of course, you eight know, hours the rising and single parents minutes for white children um, between the ages of eight and 18. 13 hours for Hispanic children and uh, 12 hours and 59 minutes for black children. And what was it? Six hours, 37 for white? 8.36 for white. Is it 8.36 mm-hmm. a day, right? A per Crazy. day. So 8.36 is jaw-dropping, but, you know, 13 is even more jaw-dropping. Holy God. And I don't know. I don't think there were Asians in that. <laughs> but um, uh, and, and so... These are things that can be done. You know, ma- marry, marry the woman you're going to have kids with. How about that? Um, turn off the screens, have more conversations, read some books. You know, mm-hmm. this, these are, so once th- there's things that the black community can do is simply look at and, and look, white communities can do this too. Look at the Asians are just about the most successful, the lowest crime, uh, lowest divorce rate, uh, highest educational attainment, highest per capita income. Uh, those guys are doing something right. And like I was, I was watching this uh, sort of show the other day and it was like musical prodigy, <laughs> you know, this, this young person can, you know, play Chopin and Mozart and so on. And yeah. I mean, did anyone think it was going to be, I mean, sadly, you know, did anyone think, did anyone not know it was going to be an Asian kid? Of course it was an Asian kid, right? Yeah. And so, so uh, white people can look at the Asian community and say, well, they're, they're doing much better than, than whites as a whole. Mm. And so there's things that we – now, if, if whites do everything that Asians do and still don't do well, then we have the paradox of white societies preferring Asian people. I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but so uh, even if there is all this racism out there, if black families can do, can emulate the most successful groups, which are not whites, but Asians, if they can do what the Asians do and they still can't get ahead, well, then we've got a lot closer. But right now, because the markers are so different between these communities, it's really hard to say what's racism and what's bad decision. And of course there's racism, but there are also bad decisions. And um, my concern is that the the sort of uh, you know, pointing out your dad, the sort of excuse, which may or may not be an excuse. But if it is an excuse, it's really tragic. You know, one of the great things about being white is you don't get any excuses. And and that's the same thing with being Asians. What do you mean you got an A minus, right? That's terrible. Mm-hmm. And so if you grow up without excuses and you grow up with you're responsible for where you end up, then I think you have the best chance of success. It's brutal and it's hard at the time. And there's lots of times when everybody would love excuses. But I, I, I always, I'm really troubled by the degree to which excuses are handed out to various minority groups. I think that's, I think that's where the real racism is. To be honest. Yeah, well, no. And I think my concern with that is that it seems like part of the overall indoctrination. I mean, and it's part of, and 
You know, and really, realistically, going all the way back to when we first talk about race issues uh, to our kids, we need to think about when I was when I was talked to, when it was discussed with me, uh, like I don't I remember the first time I really became aware of slavery and what that meant, and because I had to look around the room. And I'm like, okay, these people's ancestors enslaved my ancestors. So, so you know, I'm not saying withhold that, but I'm saying, isn't doesn't it occur to anybody this might be a traumatic experience for children, and uh, it might set the tone for the rest of their life. And maybe be careful about how we present this information a little bit. Um, and again, I'm not advocating censorship altogether, but. I mean, I don't have children. I mean, I don't know if you can relate to what I'm trying to say there or not. Oh, no, listen. I mean, um, my background is Irish, and uh, the Irish were bought and sold as slaves as well. Mm-hmm. But, 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 just the, but, but that's just one thing. But just the idea of what are we saying to our young people? What are we saying to our young minorities when we are – because I remember when I was in college, I finally started – I finally stood up for the first time in my life because my, my father was – pretty violent and so i was afraid of him and i started speaking out but not like not super outspoken just you know letting my opinion go and my opinion was that or like shouldn't we i would ask questions like shouldn't we at least talk about when affirmative action might end nobody even wants to talk about it let's assume for example for a second that affirmative action is exactly what you know america needed exactly when it needed can't we talk about when this might end can't we talk about when uh entitlement programs in colleges and hiring practices might end based on race because the other thing over that that, that really concerns me is this creates a backspring of resentment that probably wasn't there before what if you create racist people through this process well, also, just, just to remind, and we've got, of course, the, the truth about slavery as a presentation, but I think it was about 4% of whites in the South owned slaves. So saying, well, their ancestors owned these people's ancestors, really not the case. Right. <laughs> really not the case. Then there's been very many t- times in this conversation that maybe I should have said the average or some of them or something like that. It's, as a sh- Very few. Yeah, as as a shorthand, a lot of times I'll just say white people, you know, knowing better. But, uh, but yeah, but yeah, and, but, and this is the right. challenge, right? That, yeah. that that the moment we start to aggregate in that way, there are so many exceptions and and footnotes and asterisks and so on. But it's like one of those. Have you ever? Yeah, you've been in college, right? So you read these these uh, articles where it's like. I think Steph Kinsella's written a few. It's like three lines and then like 300 lines of footnotes underneath. And that's sometimes what happens when you start talking about aggregates. It's like footnotes, 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 stars, stars, asterisks, exceptions, exceptions. And and then it's just like, oh, Lord, what do we even talk about now? Yes. Well, yeah. And it's it's important. And that would have been a good time to insert a footnote. So so thank you for that. Um, Because I'm aware, of course, that there's, you know, a small minority of white people in the South own slaves. And, um, so let's just before I want to move on to the next caller, although I've really enjoyed this call, but you have used the word malcon- mal- malcontentedness yeah. a number of times. And I'm wondering if you want to unpack that a little bit more, because that seems, I think like the most action, I always try to get back to the actionable stuff. And I think Sam, that the most actionable stuff that we can talk about is the, the malcontentedness that you feel or would like to feel less of. Oh yeah. I mean, just the, well, 
so malcontent, never mind racial, never mind racial malcontent for a while. Just like, oh, I got to brush my teeth. Uh, I can't just go to bed. I got to brush my teeth that we feel sometimes the resistance a- again, giving you credit, you know, uh, the, your, your, your talk that you did on, on, on procrastination made me think of that and how you, you related it to, but what I really want to get past is just the malcontent the malcontentedness, which, which is, you know, telling me that I deserve more than I have, you know, because, uh, because this, this assumption somewhere stuck in my head somewhere that I might just be better off, you know, have more automatically if I, if I were white or if I were at least a solid racial identity. Um, no Asian Asian. Exactly. If I were totally, no, statistically, you, you want to be Asian or you want to be, you know, you know uh, I, Jew. do you know how I could become Asian? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think in your frappe of genetic uh, reconstruction, I'm sure you can blend something, <laughs> something that, that, in. There you go. But no, yeah. But, no, but this is the thing. It's like, it, no, Asian privilege. Asian privilege sure. is statistically the reality. Mm. But people don't like Asian privilege because, because Asians are in a minority in fundamentally still largely white countries. And it, it goes against the racial little white narrative for people to remember that if there's any privilege in the world, and I don't think privilege is the right word, mm-hmm. it's Asian privilege. So forget about, you know, leap over mere whiteness. <laughs> you know? Yeah, okay. Go, go for pure Asian. That, that's, where you want to, that's where you want to get to if you want to have the best outcome statistically uh, in just about any society. So if I have kids, maybe I want them to learn Chinese or something. But I feel like I was kind of, I, I don't want to seem like I'm dodging. When I'm talking about this malcontentedness of like the malcontent of just dealing with the fact that, okay, dude, you're black. You don't deserve anything more. You're black, white, Native American. You just just live your black, white, Native American ass life. Uh, do what you can, and, and make friends of you know where you can find them, and, and develop uh, what I want to say connections in the community of your own, and 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 try to create win win situations where you can. Um, that that's I. There's still this lingering kind of malcontent of not being able to actualize that and sort of like whining on the inside, you know, I mean. Sam, let me ask you a very indelicate question. Sure. When it comes to harm that's been inflicted on your life, is it some sort of abstract white privilege that has harmed you the most or is it your father's violence? Um, Absolutely, without a question, my father's violence. I mean, I think it's fair to say, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, of course, but I think it's fair to say, Sam, that you've been far more oppressed by a black than by a white. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, Not because of his blackness, but just because your father happened to be black and violent, right? Mm-hmm. Now, as far as that goes, I think that's a really important thing to, to recognize which is that the challenges that you faced were as the result of your your father's violence towards you. That was the pretty, I I would imagine that was the most significant traumatic and destructive thing that happened in your life. Yeah, and And, my mother, my mother too. And what was your mother up to when you were a kid? You know, she, you know, she handed out her fair share of beatings. She never had the guts to protect me. She was pretty much compliant with my father's uh, means of um, what they would have both called punishment. 
or well, discipline, you know, but they were, you know, it was a lot of corporal punishment, a lot of physical aggression. And there's always a threat of violence when it's not like I wasn't in one of those strains where I was getting beat on constantly within the edge of my life, but I was always. No, it was pretty rough, right? I mean, yeah. you said um, two to three times a week. Yeah. You were hit at by least... belts, switches, kitchen spoons, mostly by your father, right? Not not the entire time. There was definitely periods uh, that was two or three times a week, maybe more. I was getting beaten on uh, mostly by my father. My, my mother, would, would she'd do her part every once in a while, um, which she felt was her part anyway. So yeah, no, I mean I've I've reflected at great length, uh, and I'm not, and it's it's it can't can't be overlooked about the the violence and, and how it's you know made me angry and violent, and that's you know can be, I mean I can just tie that to my parents who they are, and if there's a movement out there, right, and if there's a movement out there that says, Sam, your violence and your aggression is a just response to racist white people mm-hmm. and a racist society. That takes the heat off your family, right? Yeah. That means that you don't have to look at your family as, you know, this biracial whack-a-mole environment that you grew up in. Mm. You don't have to look at your family and say, these are moral choices that my family make. But if, and of course, corporal punishment in black households is, is higher than it is in whites. And God oh, knows yeah. it's high, high enough in whites. Yeah. But if there's, a, if there's a lot of hitting of kids in the black culture and then the kids grow up and there are all these people out there saying, ah, you know, you're angry because you're oppressed and there's whitey and there's racism and there's mm-hmm. privilege and you don't have it and they're going to keep you down. What it does is it channels that anger and that resentment and that fear and that trauma out of the family and into this general nonsense ether called abstract society, right. which is also incredibly destructive to the black community because it's only by turning the uh, the anger back in the family and dealing mm-hmm. with the source that you can actually break the cycle. Yeah. Blaming white people for violence in the black community uh, in the household against kids right. is a great way of making sure that this IQ shaving down aggression against children continues in the black community. Well, I think one of the reasons that... Uh black people are so aggressive and I, maybe I should insert in general or average, uh, against our kids is because some sort of transference to, from slave discipline. And I also think, I don't know if there's any research that's ever done, but my personal thought is one of the reasons there's such an absentee problem with black fathers is because we are trained to believe that it's our duty to beat our kids. And when you think that, you know, when we think about, uh, our own experiences, how horrible that was, we, we'd rather just flake out and not be a dad because if we're a dad and we're present, that's part of our duty as a father. We, we need to beat our children. I don't know if, they, if, I don't know how you would research that. I don't know how you design Well, no, but, but black illegitimacy was far lower in the 1950s, like three times lower in the 1950s than it is now. And, and so, right. and, and corporal punishment was also stronger Oh, in some ways, it's, I, I don't know. Actually, I don't know the facts for that. I thought I was thinking about it. So I think taking the problems in the black family and saying slavery, you face the huge challenge that many factors within the black family were far better in the 1950s than they are in 2015. And that is, what, 65 years further away from slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a theory that's been bandied about for a lot. That that that's, that's something you hear. So I don't know. But but let's say let's say it was. Let but so, so shouldn't that be? Shouldn't that be an additional incentive to commit to peaceful parenting? See that that's my concern is that if people say 
oh, okay, so so blacks hit their kids more because of slavery. Okay, now that we have that knowledge and we find slavery a reprehensible uh, institution, which of course it was morally evil to to. Uh, <laughs> there are no words for how morally evil it was. But then, shouldn't that be even more of an incentive to commit to peaceful parenting? Since if that theory is true, I don't know if it's true or not. But if then that, but it seems it's like, well, we hit our kids because of slavery, so bang, 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 right? It's oh, like, yeah, no. absolutely. How is that honoring the, the the suffering of the slaves to continue the legacy? Well, it's it, it's the whole thing of it's it's an ego thing though. It's like the slave master hit me. It's it's reminding it's it's reminding somebody of the pecking order. At least as the theory goes. At least as it's been expressed to me. But yeah, absolutely, you're right. That should that could you know better serve as an inspiration for uh, for ending the cycle of violence because you don't want your children to think like slaves. You don't transfer. Uh, an identity as a slave to your children. I, I will never hit my children. I mean, I'm, that's. I mean, I've come to realize the ridiculousness of that, and, and and so I hope I have kids someday because I think you know I've got a lot to offer as a father, a potential father. But I just ugh, can't get that figured out quite. So. Oh yeah, but, no. If if I mean, if you're a listener to this show and you don't breed, uh, I'm coming over to your house and smacking you upside the head. You know, just with a book. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, you, you know, you, you've got the self-knowledge uh, and so on. But I was, you know, it's it's not the ridiculousness. Like if I referred to slavery as ridiculous, uh, that would be not a great. I mean, this the kind of uh, uh, assault that you received uh, was not ridiculous. It was downright evil. I'm not okay. saying your parents are irredeemably evil or anything like that, but I think we do have to have way? some moral standard which says that beating kids with implements two right. to three times a week. If that's not evil, then there's no such thing as evil. What is it? Do you have a definition that you're working out for, for evil? Sure. Uh, I've got um, a bunch of shows about it, but very briefly, uh, evil is when you use standards to justify your own actions as moral, and then when those standards are applied to your own actions, suddenly everything reverses. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay, because then then you can't claim an insanity defense because you're right. So it's basically hypocrisy. Yeah, definitely. If, uh, enacted in violent moral hypocrisy is to me uh, how you know whether there's evil going on, right? So you know the example I've used before is if you say, well, you know, you hit your kids because you know they they don't listen, then do you get to hit your parents when they're old if they don't listen? You know, right. you, oh, you hit your kids because their brains are still developing and they need to know what's, you know, they're cognizantly yeah. deficient. And so you need to use violence because you can't use your words. It's like, OK, so when your parents get older and they are maybe a little senile or having senior moments, then do you hit them? Are you allowed to spank them uh, because they're not doing what they should? Um, well, of course, people would say, well, of course, you're not allowed to hit old people who yeah. are forgetful. Right. But you're allowed to hit kids who are forgetful. It's like, well, wait a second here. How the fuck is this different? Yeah. It, morally, it's it's hard to make the case that it's somehow fundamentally uh, opposite. It, it, it's so funny to hear people defend uh, that have been the victims of uh, corporal punishment defend it. And it's just because they want to have respect for their parents. They don't want to hate their parents. They don't want to have to analyze what they what they've done to them. And, and it, well, I'll give you another example, right? So um, a lot of parents, uh, if, if their kids confront them about being beaten or spanked or, or whatever, they say, well, you know, um, it's how I grew up. It's everyone was doing it. It was mm. just the accepted norm, right? Mm -hmm. But when I was a kid, if you ever tried using that excuse while everybody else was doing it, what did, ever, what did the teacher say? If, if everyone jumped off a bridge, 
Would you do it? Would you do it too? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, at the age of six or seven, you have this standard which says you cannot blame what, everyone, what you do on what everyone else is doing. But then when these same people, and your parents say this to you as well, but then when you grow up and you apply the standard instead of against a six-year-old, against a 30-year-old who was a parent when you were young, suddenly it's like, oh, well, everyone was doing it, so it was okay. Right, so th- th- this, is, uh, this is the immorality of having moral standards that you in- inflict on children. Yeah. But then when those same children grow up and apply those same moral standards to you, somehow it's completely opposite. Uh, Mike, you had some data on spanking? Yeah, this is a good time to plug The Primordial Violence, Spanking Children, Psychological Development, Violence, and Crime by Murray A. Strauss, which is the Bible for any type of statistic or research when it comes to corporal punishment. And this is on page 257 for those who would like to check up on it. Um, He says, three race or ethnic groups were compared, whites, blacks, and other. Overall, in 1968, there was little difference in the percent who approved of spanking. Over 90% of all three groups thought spanking was necessary. The trends in approval of spanking for each ethnic group reveal large decreases in approval of spanking for both whites and others over the 26-year period. This goes up Mm -hmm. to 1994. For blacks, a decrease in approval of spanking was much less than for other ethnic groups, 14 percentage points for this period compared with 26 percentage points for whites and 32 percentage points for the other category. Around 1968, just looking at the chart, blacks appear to be close to the 100%, and uh, whites are pretty close to that, maybe 90, 96 or 98. And uh, now it's, it appears, just looking at it, it's um, for black, it's 82%, and for white, 66%. And that's as of 1994. Mm-hmm. Right. So it can't just be slavery if blacks and whites started out spanking uh, with, with spanking approvals about the same, or, uh, then it can't, it can't just be one, right? Because, yeah. so anyway, well, thank I, I don't know sort of how to, yeah, I, I don't know sort of how to sum, sum this up, uh, other than just to say the following, and I'll, I'll give you the last word then, because it's only fair, okay. which is, uh, you know, as an empiricist, I really... I'm, 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 I remain agnostic about the prevalence of racism. The existence of racism, I don't doubt, but the prevalence of racism. And racism as the sole cause for disparity in various groups, economic, uh, educational, familial, marital, and social success, I view as unverified. As okay. unverified. And the, I would love to see it verified one way or the other. And, mm-hmm. and the best way to do that is for those groups who are doing poorly to study the groups who are doing really well, and those are the Asians, and mimic their behaviors and do what... Nobody's asking anyone to invent the wheel from scratch, right? Just look at the Asians and say... And this is true for whites too. Look at the Asians and say, well, what are the Asians doing? Let's get some of that. <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's uh, drink deep from the copper cup of Asian privilege and see where we end up. Now, if blacks do what Asians do and still... Uh, remain uh, disadvantaged economically, then I think we're we're closer uh, to right. to finding some some evidence for the r- racism. But if whites are so racist, it seems hard to imagine why Asians do so much better than whites. Um, because I can't imagine how racism would not include Asians and blacks and Hispanics and so on, mm-hmm. all in the same big bag. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, y- there are always people out there who are going to not like what you're doing. I mean, 
yeah, it's tough being black. You know, try being an atheist. I mean, <laughs> there are no Reverend Jesse Jacksons out there protecting everyone who's who's negatively spoken of as a race, as a, as a as an atheist. Uh, atheists are uh, less trusted than rapists in some areas of America, uh, and that's not a good company to be keeping. So there is, of course, lots of people out there who are going to have problems with with what you do, and you can either screw up your own life because there are haters out there. Or you can give a very elegant screw you to the haters by emulating the best around you and uh, disproving them through the gritty raising up of your own community. And um, I think that would be best for, for everyone. Uh, and so I'll, gi- I'll give you the last word. Actually, I actually I want to say something kind of off topic. Uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, this has been this uh, month and a half. I've been listening to your podcast. has been transformative. And uh, I want to say to the listeners out there that uh, this man is doing important work and let's make sure he and his staff are getting uh, supported and uh, let, let's let's go ahead and, and contribute. to. And so he's free of the advertising and everything like that. And he's able to say what he needs to say. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you very much having me on the show and uh, I appreciate the talk, sir. Well, I appreciate that too. I, I'll even forgive you for referring to me as Sir, as though I'm 800 years old. Uh, <laughs> I was that's in the army, right. so I, I've, I've had a trouble. Oh, you? Yeah. <laughs> so, so the anti-statist anarchist, you need to bring your army training to bear on. Uh, that's fine. Um, no, I appreciate it. Listen, I mean, we are brothers. I mean, we are clear cognitive thinkers who work with reason and evidence, and uh, you know, closer to you than vast majority of my fellow whiteies. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we are brothers in thought, and that's where we should all be residing. As, uh, as human beings. So I really thank you for your call. I hope you'll drop us a line and let us know how it's going. And you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Good night. All right. Take care. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, up next is Caleb. Uh, Caleb wrote in and said, what is the philosophical approach to long-term debt, such as mortgages, if you know that the markets and currency are highly manipulated and likely to collapse? Yeah. You might, you might want to parse that out a little bit, Caleb. So, yeah. So, you know, where, where this conversation comes from is ultimately, you know, trying to plan out a financial future in a time of uncertainty. That's a high level, right? It's a different way of saying it. Uh, what, what brought on the, converse, the, the question was, is, you know, in a situation, a discussion that I had at work talking about refinancing. And it was very much a conversation that was, um, you know, inside the system, right? This is the pros and cons of refinancing and do you pay your mortgage off early? And I found myself thinking, you know, this, it's inside the matrix, right? It's a, you're, you're a good citizen if you have a good credit score and, and you can refinance and it's all good. But how do we, how do we plan um, for the future if we, if we know that, you know, say for example, the, the dollar is essentially a debt instrument and the, it's being inflated, and now we have, you know, Yellen is the you know, the Fed chairman is, you know, basically said, I don't know what we're doing. We're just going to keep on trucking, and ultimately, this is going to lead to to nothing. And that left me wondering, well, is there a philosophical commentary on how we how we deal with essentially? Uh, our word and, and trust and something like debt, how do we plan if we know that the other side is stacked against us and that it's systematically dishonest? Do, you know, is the plan well, okay? There's, no, there's, there's, 
<laughs> Technically, there's there's no there's no philosophical content in terms of morality that can be applied to a coercive and deceptive situation, right? So um, when you are in a state of compulsion, when you're a victim of compulsion, there is no fundamental moral argument that can be made. Do you have the right of self defense? Like, let's see, if you're kidnapped, right? Do you have the right of self defense? Absolutely. Do you have the right to use violence to, to free yourself? Absolutely. Are you morally obligated to do so? You are not. Right? right. It's, it's, it's a, it's, you have the capacity, but nobody can force you to do it. Because that would be to say, well, you're in the wrong. Oh, sorry. You, 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 uh, the other people are in the wrong for applying force to you. And then you must be forced to defend yourself against that force. That means the initiation of force is both good and bad. It doesn't pass UPB. And so... If you are, um, since we are all in this deceptive, multi-level marketing fantasy camp of fiat currency, then the choices that you make should obviously stay within the law. But the choices that you make have no moral dimension, right? Because, because you, you're in a situation that you would never choose to be in uh, that is, is deceptive and 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 coercive, and so on. So when you're in the victim of a universally accepted fraud, then staying within the law, uh, there is no fundamental, it's moral to do this, and it's not moral to do that, if that makes sense. Because if we're going to bring morality into the equation, the first place we need to put it to is to, to fiat currency itself, which is just wrong as a whole. Right. So, so for example, strategic default. Um, in, in that case, you're if I'm understanding it correctly, you're operating inside the system to simply say, okay, bank, here's the keys. We're going to walk away is there, there's no, there's no sort of moral aspect to walking away from your side of the mortgage agreement, for example. Well, see, I mean, sorry, that's a little bit, I, I thought you meant sort of larger investment strategies and so on. Um, that, I mean, if you can't pay your debts, you can't pay your debts. Right. I mean, you can't get if you're not the Federal Reserve, you can't get blood from a stone. Right. Right. And so um, it's generally better to pay your debts if you can. Right. I mean, you wouldn't do that. You know, if, if, if you borrowed 20 bucks from a friend and you had the money to pay him back, you wouldn't feel good about not paying him back. Right. So um, if you if you can't pay your debts, you, you can't pay your debts. And then you can follow whatever the legal requirements are for discharging those debts or eliminating those debts uh, as much as possible. But um, I generally have a, and this could be just a sort of middle class bourgeois preference, I generally have a preference for fixed assets rather than debt. And so I uh, am quite a fan of, of trying to get debt free as much as, as much as possible. And that is, um, that's my general preference. I'm not going to say that's any kind of universal preference or, or certainly no moral aspect to it. There's nothing immoral with borrowing and paying interest. It's all perfectly fine. But, um, I, I'm a big one for if you can get debt free, uh, I think that's generally a better place to be. Yeah. And, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, obviously, ultimately the you know, if we if we were to look at the mathematics of it, you know, the 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 interest on the debt is is in a way of looking at it slavery. I've heard it put that way by certain hey, people. Hey, I I don't think anything that you voluntarily sign, knowing the consequences, can be considered slavery. 
Um, and and the, the, this is an old Christian notion that, that usury is, is the same as theft. And um, that's not, I think it's also in, in um, Islam as well. But it's not, it's not, it's not. I mean, there's a, there's a time value to money. We would rather have something now than next year. And so because everybody would rather have something now than next year, there's a, a greater demand for things now than in the future. And because there's a greater demand for things now in the future, you can sell money for more money now than you can sell for later. And that the, the more money that you sell money for is called interest. So I don't think, you know, you could either uh, live in your car for 15 years and save up to buy a condo, or you can buy a condo and pay interest every month and have the pleasure of living not in your car for 15 years. So I don't think that there's anything, again, free market-based. There's nothing that's wrong or, or immoral or enslaving uh, about uh, interest. I mean, there's certainly things that are unwise around interest. You know, So if you, you buy a $30 pair of sneakers and, and you end up paying the bare minimum on Visa every month, you could end up paying a couple of hundred bucks for those sneakers. That's not wise, but I don't think it's the same as, as slavery. Okay, yeah, no, and that makes sense, too. Um, I, I guess I'm, you know, trying to, part of this is that I'm, I'm trying to parse out, you know, understanding the monetary system as it actually operates, and then applying that back to the decisions that I'm making, right? As, as you know, philosophy gets into, you know, morals, and morals uh, essentially is the, the auth, advises you on the on your decision making how do you make decisions given the knowledge and understanding that the system is essentially stacked against you from from a like like a systemic standpoint uh, can you give me and I, I don't because i don't know much about how to abandon a house i mean can you give me a sort of more concrete example of a choice that you might make um yeah, so I mean, investment strategies, or, or, or you know, taking taking a job based on a certain level of income, it's those would be would be two of them, right? And and I guess where this is coming from is, I recently did some research on. I really wanted to understand what the dollar was, what what is the system, and you know, I got into it and I understand. Okay, well, the the dollar is essentially a uh, a co <laughs> co traded IOU between the the Fed and the and the um, the Treasury, and that you know essentially those dollars are lent out, and then you know fractionally uh, fractional reserve multiplies those. Essentially, have dollars being lent out. They don't. There's no value behind them. But then you have you have to turn around and pay interest on that. And I, I absolutely agree with you with the ec- economics on of the time value of money and i have no question on interest rates in general but how do you then reconcile that knowledge that the person lending you this basically created it out of nothing and yet they can take your house if something goes wrong and and you default that seems wrong wrong to me (laughs) oh it is wrong yeah absolutely morally it's wrong i mean uh, yeah when you again like like most people when I was younger, it's like, well, people put the money in the bank and then the bank lends that money out. It's like, no, nope. <laughs> it's not how it works. They, they just create the money to lend to you and then they have an asset called your house, which they can collect on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous, uh, horrifying scam um, that uh, is, is uh, monstrous in, in every dimension. Um, but uh, so, so as far as what, as what goes on, um, you know, they have the law on their side. So you've got to pay your debts, you know, if that's, that's the obligation. Of course, what you can do is, is 
you know, try and work through through bitcoins and so on. And there may be tax implications for those that they could be treated as uh, as assets and so on. But um, I don't think you can you can't go wild west, and it would be I think wrong to do so because you're going to end up in jail, and that's not where you can I think do much to help the world <laughs> become a better place. So uh, I don't have any particular advice. I you know I mean. I uh, I pay my bills and I try to remain as debt free as I can, and um, uh, but but uh, the system as a whole is is what it is, and it's still you know we have massive and significant complaints about the economic system that we live under, but it's still the best time to live in history. I mean, <laughs> like I mean that's that's the problem, right? I mean you can focus on the negatives from here to kingdom come, and Lord knows there are lots of them. But I can't think of a better time that I'd like to live. I mean, except maybe the future, which I'm aiming to get at step by step. But, um, uh, you know, focus on, I would say, focus on all the amazing things that the remnants of the free market is is kicking our way, like this conversation and the capacity to have this conversation. So um, I generally just work within the system financially, try and stay debt free um, and uh, try and minimize your spending and uh, rejoice and enjoy this amazing system that we we live in. I mean, we have the remnants of free speech. We have the remnants of the free market. We have ever-escalating technological capacities and, uh, you know, are constantly, well, often improving healthcare treatments and so on. I mean, there's amazing things going on in the world. And, uh, you know, when you think back in time when you could be the king of France, you open the palace windows at Versailles, and he fainted from the stench because, of course, there were very few sewage systems. Basically, people just took their shit and dumped it out their windows in the street. And that old Monty Python joke is like, hey, he's a king. Well, how do you know? Well, he hasn't got shit all over him. I mean, we live in this incredible utopia of a society relative to what has happened in the past. And yes, there's a lot of corruption. Yes, there's a lot of fiat currency. Yes, there's a lot of debt. But... Humanity is still going through its progress. You know, there's still an enormous amount to do. We are still marginally evolved apes with giant lasers waving from our hairy palms. And there is an enormous amount to do. And there's only one way to get there and one way to do it, which is to continually cry our philosophical yawp from the very rooftops and cloud castles of the world to the point where humanity listens and wises up over time. Uh, we are part of the general accelerant of the species that makes the world a better place, uh, painfully and slowly and against great resistance. But um, if I were you, uh, I would try to uh, look at all of the amazing and wonderful things that are going on in your life rather than, well, what should I do under this terrible fiat currency system? It is better than being paid in human teeth or seashells or salt or you know all of the other things that have been used in primitive societies throughout history as currency. Uh, yes, it is our swipe toilet paper, but it also gets to buy us um, tablets, which never existed before, except in the stone and commanding kind brought down by Charlton Heston from C bad CGI mountains. So uh, sorry about that sort of tangential, tangential rant, but there are wonderful things occurring in the world. And this is the greatest opportunity humanity has ever had for significant pro progress and compressed progress. The, the kind of progress that we see in the realm of technology, I mean, trying to explain to my daughter what life was like when I was a child, uh, 
I, I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I don't. It's like trying to explain uh, the IMAX to a jellyfish. It's like, it was just completely different than everything that's going on now. And, you know, my childhood when I was a kid was a hell of a lot closer to Socrates' childhood than my child is childhood is to my daughter, so we're just a generation apart, admittedly a wide generation. But we are right on the edge, right on the edge of the most incredible growth opportunity in terms of ethics and human progress that the world has ever seen. We don't need to have hundreds of years of religious warfare. We don't need to have 800 years of a dark age. We don't need to have any of these things. We just need to unclog our ears and listen to reason. And there has never been a better capacity to bring the megaphone of philosophy up to the collective ear of mankind and (laughs) whisper, joke, yawp, belt, bleat, and scream the elemental truths of ethics into the mind, hearts, and souls of the species. And I think it's an incredible time to be alive. And I may, should I ever have the opportunity to live for a thousand years, I might find the 900 after the first hundred significantly less exciting, interesting, and stimulating than the first hundred. So I would not want to be anyone else, anywhere else, any other time. And I think that's something to really celebrate. It it is, and I uh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, a lot of times when you when you first understand in in kind of get out of the cave, as it were, and, and see what's going on, it can be a bit shocking to really see. And you can end up fixating on the negatives as opposed to the positives. So that it it actually was not really a tangent as much as a good way of zooming out and, and seeing a little better perspective on on what's taking place. And and yet having the you know the wisdom to make moral decisions and ultimately understand that you know be honest, pay your debts as you can, and but if something you know happens, then it's you know that's beyond your control. That you know there's a lot of other more positive things taking place, and that that's actually rather reassuring um, to hear because this it, it can get me down on occasion. <laughs> oh no, no more than on occasion. You know, more than on occasion, I mean, we are like doctors. It's hard to remember there are healthy people because everyone you talk to is, is sick. There was a, a picture that, that struck me. It was snapped by, I think, an, EM, uh, an EMT, I think is the name, the, the, the people who help uh, with ambulances and so on. And it was a, a doctor who was just basically leaning over a railing, sobbing because his patient had died. And, uh, I mean, being a doctor, of course, particularly in a hospital is, is pretty grueling. And you basically see people on the worst days of their lives and often the last days of their lives. And we are physicians of the moral ailments of mankind. And because we need to look at and delve into the heart of darkness of human evils and manipulations, it can weary us down. It can, and and that's the inevitable occupational hazard of being a moralist. And I think just about everybody who listens to this show in any consistent way is uh, a moralist. And a moralist's job is to fight evil. And there are many philosophies in the world that discount the existence of evil. Uh, I just did a com- had a conversation with a Canadian writer and thinker, uh, William Gairdner, and we were discussing the invisibility or the skepticism towards evil, right? I mean, a giant asshole flies 
149 innocent people into a plane, uh, into, into, in, in a plane, into a mountain. And that is about as evil a thing as can be imagined. Now, if the guy had a brain tumor or whatever, there was something that was happening, okay, it's a different matter. But imagine you wake up in the morning and you get into an airplane and the captain says, uh, you know, let's get prepared for the landing. And you say, well, hopefully or maybe, you know, because you're planning this. And you calculatedly lock the cabin door shut. You push the button that takes you down to a low altitude. Everybody starts screaming. And I got to imagine there was a six mile on this son of a bitch's face as he slaughtered 149 innocent people flying them into a mountain. Now, absent any biological underlying causation, if that's not evil, there's no such thing as evil. And all you hear about is mental illness. Well, he was just ill, you see, like he had uh, cancer or uh, MS or diabetes. He was just ill, you see. Well, that's a great camouflage for the evildoers in society to pretend that evil is simply a kind of illness or that evil is a kind of ignorance or evil arises out of, let's just give ISIS jobs poverty. Notwithstanding the fact that uh, certainly of the terrorists involved in 9-11, vast majority of them were middle class or higher and a good deal of them had advanced degrees. So we need to not just for ourselves, but for society as a whole, remind people of the reality of evil. And the fundamental battle that we're in is, what's the old saying, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing humanity he did not exist. And the reason that that's true, even for atheists, is that evil people wish to discount the reality and existence of evil. And so we need to remind ourselves of evil, we need to remind humanity of evil, which provokes evil. That's natural. <laughs> that's, that's the nature of the beast. And it is hard. It is hard, and it's a thankless task. Because most people, even virtuous people, do not like to be reminded of evildoers and evil actions because they then get kicked off their infinite beanbags of complacency and have to actually get up and do something in the world to make the world a better place. And people don't really want to do that. They want other people to take care of evil. They want other people to take care of wrongdoing, wrongdoers. And so there is, it's not, I think it's not just on occasion, I think it is an occupational hazard that we all need to be aware of and conscious of, that by constantly rooting around and exposing and reminding people of the existence and power of evil, um, we are going to be wearied by that, and we are going to be disgusted by that uh, at times, and uh, it is going to be exhausting, and at times we have to remember to, to drink deep of the beauty and joy in the world as well. And if we don't, I think that we are surrendering something very important. And also, not unimportantly, we are showing people that virtue is exhausting and virtue is debilitating and virtue makes you bitter. And philosophy makes you depressed and anxious and unhappy. And that is um, kind of true if you let it be true, but it's not innately or necessarily uh, true. Um, we're not going to vanquish evil. <laughs> Uh, we are not going to slam evil as the Teenage Newton, <laughs> Mutant Ninja Turtles were want to do, at least back in the 80s. Um, we are not, you know, the, the Power Rangers aren't going to slam evil. In fact, I think one of the Power Rangers just stabbed someone in real life, one of the ex-Power Rangers. So we are not going to conquer evil any more than any doctor is going to conquer all disease. But we can make significant steps towards it. And 
like all moralists, we will not be thanked for a generation or two, which does not do us <laughs> that much good in, in, in the moment. But we are simply paying forward the great and golden gifts of virtue and philosophy that we received from past heroes. We are doing our own little work of heroism and paying it forward to other people who will also themselves never finish the task, but will get a hell of a lot closer than we are. And that's part of the great story of improving the species despite its protestations that we are part of. And it is the most noble task, but it is the longest lasting and in some ways the least thanked. So I think it's not just occasionally that we need to remind ourselves of these things. Well, that's, that's very good. I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I think if I if I were to, to trace back my original question that, you know, I, I think that that was, you know, mostly just a symptom of the frustration that I was feeling that uh, that you unpacked. I knew that because I didn't know what you were talking about particularly, which usually means that there's an underlying emotional driver. And that's what I was sort of trying to zero in on. Right. Yeah, no, and you're correct. It's, it's very interesting because I, um, yeah, at my work, we have a, essentially a, a speech club, uh, Toastmasters, if you're familiar with that. And I, I did a speech and I'm, I find that I, I have an audience. So I actually did a speech on, on the dollar system and, and explaining, you know, this is ultimately, you know, what the dollar is and some of the shortfalls and in inflation. And I, I said it was very informational. And I didn't really call anyone to a conclusion or, or a call to action or any of that because I was just hoping to kind of wake them up. And you know, I had this speech planned for a while, and I it I think I delivered it very well. Now, what was interesting is the guy that came up behind me did his third in a series of speeches for the benefits of good credit. And there was there was jokes around Albert, you know, you didn't stumble into a finance class. But I, I felt like I was on kind of trying to, to wake people up that there's a system here that you're in. And, and the next guy up was, you know, talking about how to be, you know, a good citizen inside of it. Right. The benefits of, of you know, essentially doing this. And and I was like, wow, this. How do I deal with with essentially trying to um, wave the flag and not have people reject the the concepts. I, my profession is sales, and a lot of what I do is, you know, and you've done it in the past. You have to present a new reality to people, and if you just tell them, they oftentimes reject it, um, which you're probably quite familiar with. And so, that's part of why I've been struggling with this: is how do I, you know, here's here's a very rubber meets the road example of how do we help people better their lives and, and understand, you know, morality and, and honesty. And how do we help them see that a lot of what they operate in is essentially designed to take things away from them without them getting angry and upset and reacting? Yeah, no. And, and, but, but you also have to recognize, I would say that you're, you're pushing against rational ignorance, right? In, in that, what is the payoff? for them to learn about this system? How is it going to add to their happiness? And what you're saying to me, I think, is can I find some way that they're going to benefit from knowing about this stuff, some way that they can make better economic decisions and so on? But um, I think that is, that is a challenge that we face. Well, it's certainly the challenge I faced when starting up the show, which was 
how am I going to fight against rational ignorance? Right, which is, I can't change it, so why study it? Right, it's just going to make me unhappy. Where's the net benefit in knowing this uh, stuff about the dollar and fiat currency and, and so on? What is the net benefit? And this, to me, is is one of the things that libertarianism is is still, it's a work in progress, I guess you could say, which is that, well, let's say I find all uh, all about how terrible the war on drugs is and how many people are incarcerated. Well, what does that do for me? In terms of my life's happiness, I can't change it. I can't go bust these people out, right? And I can't, you know, change it. And so I've just spent a lot of time and energy learning stuff that makes me unhappy that I can't change. And that's why uh, I sort of said at the beginning of all of this, you know, my, my very sixth podcast was on self-defense is a concept, but most of us are aggressed against in our family where self-defense as children is practically mostly impossible. And so lots of libertarians talk about the concept of self-defense, but I brought it right back to, well, can we even act on it for the most part? And most of us who experience aggression experience it as children when we can't really do much about it. And that aspect of things is really, I think, a great challenge. My answer has been, let's figure out how we can apply philosophy in our own lives, voluntarism in relationships, um, non-aggression principle in, in parenting, virtue in reducing violence, not by studying fiat currency and the drug war, which are fine to study if you interest you, but what can we do to reduce violence in the world? Well, the, the most prevalent violence in the world is violence against children masquerading as discipline in parenting. And that we can do something about that in our own families, in families that we have any kind of influence over, that we can act on. And so there's, you know, in studying the family, in studying parenting, in studying spanking, in studying the effects of aggression against children, thebombinthebrain.com, you can go for more on this. I am trying to unite theory with actionable practice. And there is no excuse called rational ignorance when it comes to virtues that we can actually affect, change and bring to bear on the people around us and on our own lives as well. Uh, all of my studying of economics and so on has had some value in business, but it is the studying of parenting and the family and relationships that has given me the most freedom and given me the greatest capacity to improve my exercise of virtue in this life. And so there is frustration for those of us who wish to bring unactionable moral clarity to those around us, but you will get huge amount of resistance because they're like, well, don't tell me what I can't change. Like it's the old thing that like, would you want to know the day of your death? I don't because if I know it for sure, I can't change it. Right. And, um, so the, the veil of rational ignorance is very strong in people. And, um, that's why my particular approach has been, okay, let's talk virtue, but let's talk the virtue we can do something about it's something tangible, measurable, that is going to actionably reduce and legally reduce the prevalence of violence and aggression in this world. And that is around relationships in the family. So that's been my answer. Maybe there are other answers out there, but um, I think you are going to face this frustration quite regularly of people resisting uh, a knowledge of, um, it's like, do you, do you want to take the red pill if there's no resistance movement and you just end up living in a cave? Well, no, <laughs> you don't want to take the 
the red pill if there's no resistance movement, if you can't win against the robots, if you can't free yourself from living life as a battery for the ruling classes, then why would you want that red pill? I wouldn't. It would make no sense. But if there is a resistance movement, if there's something you can do to, to legally, morally, and practically oppose the spread of violence in the world, then I think the red pill is worth it. But if it's simply going to take you out of the matrix and put you in hell, uh, it's a tough case to make, right? Yeah, I've, uh, I've often told people that uh, ignorance is bliss, and I'm, I'm not very ignorant. Right. So. It's, it so those different. are my suggestions. Um, yes, and of you. course, if you can come up with other solutions, I'm always happy to hear about where philosophy can be brought into, into practice. It's very good. Excellent conversation, Stefan. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for uh, an amazing and powerful show. These are the highlights of my week as far as non-family time. So I really, really appreciate everyone's support. Um, we put out a donation request yesterday i try not to put them out on april the first april fools which you can uh, check out um, but if you have checked it out just a reminder again freedomainradio.com slash donate we need your help and uh, we're looking forward to getting it thank you so much everyone have a great night <laughs>